stood up and she said, oh, for heaven's sakes, with a real New York accent, <laughs> you have your monkeys, I have my monkeys. Don't call out your monkeys. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can't have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. One, two, three, three four. four. One, two. Good enough. That will help me with the editing. All right, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back to the Alex Jones Show, where we talk about reptiles and testosterone pills and the deep state. Don't forget hydrochloroquine. We're also talking about the chloroquine. <laughs> Fill your basement with guns and just, you know, <laughs> so just kidding. Um, when in doubt, kill. <laughs> uh, this, is a pro- <laughs> this is a program called It's Not Just in Your Head. Two therapists, we're actual therapists, <laughs> um, talking about the interconnections between uh, economics and politics and mental health. And um, wait, so we're not the Alex Jones show, right? No, no, <laughs> Harry, no. What are, we, what are we doing today? Today, we are talking about why it's not just in your head. And in particular, oh. about the mental health issues around organizing. And so as a little intro, one of the things that's the most damaging to mental health is where people are disconnected when they're feeling totally alone and victimized. Organizing connects you, and connection is the basis of mental health. And another thing that it does in a most powerful way is the fundamental detriment to all of our mental health, all who have experienced growing up in authoritarian families, where we learn the lines of dominance and subordination, and we learn that we are to subordinate, we are to submit, and then go to authoritarian schools where we learn the same lesson. You're nobody. Submit. And if you feel victimized, you're alone in it. You got it? And then the third way many of us experience this is in authoritarian religions where God is the ultimate authority, where the minister interprets what he says, and where you are to submit even if the minister is abusing you because he is the voice of the omnipotent and you are unworthy and you are nothing. And those kinds of voices in us, those voices of subordination are what disempowers us, keeps us from standing up for our own rights. And as in the case of organizing, knowing our power, which is not as isolated individuals, but as people who create a service that the people at the top would not be able to access were it not for us. Even the capitalists are learning this now as they try to force people to their deaths to go back to work because they can't get rich without people doing the work. And so in terms of breaking out of those terrible lines of dominance and submission with hopelessness, organizing is a marvelous counteraction to those negative voices in our lives. By organizing, do you mean like organizing your closet or organizing the pens and paper in your desk? Like, what do you mean by organizing? Okay, well, what I mean is connecting to other people in the service of getting your voice heard. So if you're a student and your tuition is raised like it was in Canada some years ago, they wanted to raise it $200 because it's already minuscule. Students in Canada went on strike at all the colleges in Canada for two weeks until they got it reversed. And if an individual student had made a protest, nobody would have cared. The combination of a mass walkout, mass protest, and mass connection to each other and the community turned that around. So by organizing... I'm talking about reaching out to others to connect and act together because people who are not at the top don't have the money, but we have our worker power and our scholarly power that keeps things running. And so we have to connect if we want to change things because we're not at the top to connect that way. We're at the bottom and we need to connect together. 
Okay. Oh, well, thank you for that clarification. Um, and for listeners, I'm just going to let them know that there is a third person present in the conversation you will be hearing from very soon. Um, her name is Rachel Mendelson, and she had reached out to us via our email. And just as a reminder, everyone can email us as well. It's not just in your head at gmail.com. And she had just shared that she liked the podcast and um, that she'd been involved, I think, and Rachel, you can correct me on if I'm wrong on any of this stuff, that you were part of the Wildcat strikes that were um, kind of raging for mm-hmm. a good while before uh, COVID hit uh, throughout the entire UC system here in California um, and that you're at UC Santa Cruz. So can you maybe just say a little bit about yourself and your involvement in the strike? Yeah, sure. Um, so hi, my name's Rachel Mendelson. Um, I am starting my second year in a biomolecular engineering and bioinformatics PhD program at UC Santa Cruz. So I study mostly like mathematical ways to model population dynamics. Um, And so my first year at the end of our fall quarter, um, the graduate students decided to go on strike for a cost of living adjustment to live in Santa Cruz. Um, So within the UC system, all of the graduate students are paid the same. We have one union and one union contract for our pay. And that ignores the fact that it costs very different amounts to live in Santa Cruz versus living in a smaller city that isn't in the California Bay Area. So we wanted our contract amended somehow to acknowledge that. Um, There is a housing crisis in our city and the cost of housing is through the roofs. And frankly, it's to the point that I think graduate education is only accessible to people with financial privilege. Um, So that's what we were protesting against. The protest started with us withholding undergraduate grades for those of us that were teaching. um, And I participated by doing that. And it escalated to a picket line that we held at the base of campus, I want to say for over a month. Um, And yeah, it was really impressive. Um, So that kind of, I won't say it's died. We're still fighting for our COLA cost of living adjustment, um, just without the in-person picket line now. That's really impressive because it, if individual graduate students just implore the authorities, they will get nowhere. But they need you. You do the basic work of the organization. You're the ones who teach people, who hand in the grades, and who do the nitty-gritty work. So if you withdraw, withhold your labor, they can't function. And individual graduate students may feel, I'll only survive if I meet the needs and please my senior professor. But what you have is labor power. And by withholding it, you made the university aware that they can't ignore you. That w- That's so important not to just kowtow to the authorities and be depressed or drop out because you can't afford to live. I know that I read at Berkeley, people are graduate students are living in their cars. Be, mm-hmm. If they have cars, because we have that in Santa Cruz too. There's yeah a well-known home houselessness crisis even amongst graduate students that are supposed to be funded for yes. their programs. Yes, I can see that. And as individuals, you would be lost if you just appealed as an individual. But as a group, you have a fighting chance, and you get to connect with each other which is a very empowering experience. I don't know if you experienced it that way. Did you, Rachel? Absolutely. Um, So it was kind of interesting because it was my first year. I wasn't as tapped into all the politics Um, and also being in the sciences. I think the STEM majors are a lot more disconnected from um, the more progressive movements that happen on campus. Mm-hmm. So get, being put in touch with the humanities majors who are really passionate about organizing and having the connection to them through that um, was really important to me, as well as C- 
seeing which other students and faculty members within my department were sympathetic and supportive of us in the strike. Um, Like we had a ton of faculty support too. So just seeing that and being able to know which faculty members were on our side and fighting with us for it was um, definitely one of the more empowering things about it. Yeah, because one of the ways they might have tried to divide you is taking the STEM fields, which are the more prestigious, and setting you apart from other people. And at that, if they absolutely. tried it, it didn't work. <laughs> did, <laughs> um, did they try? Oh, absolutely. Um, and the STEM majors helped a lot. I mean, they played along with it. Um, there's some political stuff going on in the background. So STEM majors tend to get research grants, our money and our funding can come from outside of the university. And because of that, we get paid a lot better than the other students. Um, Mm -hmm. We also get paid over the summer and humanities students don't have that luxury. So most of the graduate students need to move out of Santa Cruz for the two months of the summer where they aren't paid, but are still expected to make progress on their research. Um, And being in the STEM field, I don't have to worry about that. So a lot of the STEM majors had to were striking out of solidarity, but not for their own quality of life necessarily. Well, it's a wonderful thing because one of the things that the university does to the intellectual and spiritual detriment of all involved is to make rigid separations between the fields when all knowledge is actually connected and rigid separations between the different departments so people don't unite and you did. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you, Rachel, as a so the simple way to ask it is what led up to the strike. But I first wanted to kind of zoom out with zoom out with some mental health context. And it's, we kind of touched on this in the test run yesterday. Um, so I think the simplest way to think about depression is it's a consolidation of this really intense and enduring sense of hopelessness, powerlessness. Um, sometimes people kind of mistake it as it's people who are really sad. So that's a, a it's kind of simplistic way of thinking of depression, super feeling, super powerless, feeling super helpless. And also anxiety at its root is just being really intensely preoccupied with fear. You're afraid of something that's going to happen in the future, people rejecting you or losing something important to you or whatever. So the two, the, yeah, yes. Like your grant that lets you live, you know? (laughs) So sometimes people will talk about mental health in, in the more like what we'll call severe things like like schizophrenia or like bipolar one disorder or whatever, but depression and anxiety. Um, there's lots of research that these these two particular kinds of conditions have been on the rise in recent decades, and um, I think most average people have experienced some degree of like what we would call generalized anxiety disorder mm-hmm. or even major depressive disorder. Um, but I wanted to give some context for that to then kind of to move backwards and thinking about what were the conditions leading up to the strike if in the in the framework of understanding what we call mental health symptoms like feeling helpless feeling hopeless feeling fearful and if you have anything to say about those kind of like internal and emotional experiences that we will call mental health symptoms but that are actually being caused by uh, workplace conditions that the university is imposing on people i think in terms of the conditions the quality of life in santa cruz because So many of us cannot afford housing and because housing here is so scarce, um, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of um, abuse on the part of the landlords. I can, I know people who are living like three people to a bedroom, um, people who have mold, people whose landlords don't fix plumbing because they don't need to because housing here is just so competitive that if you complain, they'll just look for a different tenant. Um, So I think Mm -hmm. because we can't be competitive for the housing and because of the scarcity of it, we have to put up with really inhumane living conditions. And I think that that's just horrible for all of our mental health. Like you can't be expected to do good work when you have migraines from living in a moldy house. Mm. Right. And and so so the living conditions of the actual housing with is just kind of one component, right? And I know that was mm-hmm. kind of the, with with COLA, it's cost of living adjustment. It's getting paid more so that you can afford better housing. Um, but there's so much you just kind of packed into that. So 
a ton of people, usually who don't know each other, right? You have to meet on Craigslist and you have to kind of take this gamble of hoping that it's somebody that's like a livable like roommate. <laughs> so like, you know, uh, two or three or sometimes more people packed into one relatively small room usually. Um, so that's already kind of impacting your mental health. Uh, the actual like health conditions that aren't mental necessarily, but if there's uh, a bunch of mold and the landlord won't do anything about it and you packed in with that is the power differential of you knowing that if you speak up too much to the landlord um, in a way that makes them think, well, I'll just give them their 30 or 60 day notice um, because they can't give you like an eviction eviction from that, but they can legally just sort of get rid of you. Although we briefly talked about this, I need to get, we should probably all be educating ourselves about, um, so this is a message to Californians. Mm -hmm. There have been actually a lot of uh, housing reforms passed over the last year before COVID that are, that do help tenants. Uh, They're not perfect. But um, one of them is like, um, I think, I think statewide, there has to be a just cause for an eviction. But an eviction isn't the same as like a 30 or 60 day Mm. vacate notice. So anyway, just throwing that out there. But either which way, landlords still have all the power. So things could be moldy, the plumbing could not be working. And everybody kind of knows. And again, this is an anxiety issue, right? We might call this a quote, unquote, mental health problem. But you, you probably have a mass of students that are experiencing potentially deep debilitating uh, anxiety simply because they know that they can't do anything about their housing situation coupled with this internalization of helplessness because they also know since I can't do anything, I'm just sort of, um, I'm just trapped in this situation. So that's another important thing. And it does point to the fact that look with a better cost of living adjustment, people could afford better housing, or at least could afford to have their own room. But the problems are so interconnected in capitalism that the landlords also, their interest in profit only, when really basic needs like shelter should be provided to people in a decent way, food, healthy food and shelter and clean air and water, should be everyone's birthright, like healthcare. But in the meantime, fighting for a cost of living allowance allows people more choice. And so you can really see the connection between, it's not just in your head. If you're worried because you you have an unlivable situation because you're crammed in with a roommate who's outrageous or you're crammed in with mold that is unhealthy, and you have few alternatives because you don't have money, those are not just in your head. Those are out there, mm-hmm. and we need to organize around them. And so that mm-hmm. it was, it's a really empowering thing that the students at Santa Cruz did with those wildcat strikes. No, we're not going to just sit there or drop out or live on the street or live in our cars or live with crazy people in a little room. No, mm-hmm. give us more. It's a very, very important thing. And I think you mentioned capitalism and greed. And I think that's part of the problem, too, just on the part of the university is we have this state of affairs now where they're operating the university as a for-profit business, which a university should never, ever be. So we have admins that are paid ridiculously high salaries while we have the graduate students who are the foundation of the university struggling to eat. And that's just Mm -hmm. clearly not a sustainable state of affairs. It's a capitalist atrocity. It's like the CEO who gets huge millions while like Jeffrey Bezos, who made 25 billion off the pandemic and won't even give his people more than two weeks of healthcare if they get COVID because they're packed next to each other in his warehouses that these things are absolutely unconscionable. And when people organize against them, they can win. I think too, when you mentioned that, Harriet, like Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or like, I mean, any like enormous corporation, if it's, a, it's, if it's deliberately for profit and you know that that's, you know, if you work in an Amazon warehouse, like you, you know what, you know what you're there to do. Like you're there because you have this job that like, you're not extremely excited about that just pays just well enough. It may be one of several jobs, but to me, the crazy making thing, and this is sort of like within the nonprofit world, especially at something that I think is crazy making for a lot of us as well. But in the realm of education, 
I could see, again, from a mental health perspective, the amount of kind of crazy making and gaslighting and disempowerment that comes from you being a part of an educational institution and that you find that the if the executives at the top are making that much money and it seems like their decisions are actually deriving from how they can maximize profit versus how do we make access to education as universal as possible and as affordably as possible, I, I could just see it kind of eating away at your, your self-worth, your values, your motivation to just even, you know, keep up with the university experience day to day. Yes, because that kind of corruption is downright depressing because you see if you are at Harvard because you think it's the acme of education and then you notice that Jeffrey Epstein has his own office because he's raising money, you might wonder about the morality of the place. And the same thing is true at Brown University. He didn't have his own office, but he certainly had access. And at MIT, you might wonder, wait a minute, is this really truth and light mm-hmm. the way they say? <laughs> no, doesn't mm-hmm. seem that way. Seems like yeah, a capitalist corporation. Well, and so Rachel, with that in mind, right, because you're in Santa Cruz and so there's UC Santa Cruz, but there's like where I live, there's UC Santa Barbara and there's like, what, like eight to 10 UC campuses statewide. Mm-hmm. Do you like, I mean, do you have any, if you don't have experience in this, I don't, you don't have to answer, but like, do you know why or how the the wildcat strike actually spread to the entire UC system? Um, I don't know that many details about how it spread. So I know um, a big part of it was just our, the movement gaining so much traction on our campus. And I know it was the other cities with very high costs of living that came on board first. So that was uh, Berkeley. And I believe UC San Diego was one of the first to organize their own Mm -hmm. COLA strike too. And um, I know even before that, they were having rally solidarity rallies before they were organizing for their own COLA. They were just rallying to show support for us and to protest um, like the police violence that we had on campus during the protests. This is so important because it's it's like the Black Lives Matter movement where people could either take it lying down and feel shame at their own color and at their poverty or whatever or get together and say no, or the Me Too movement, where you can feel embarrassed because somebody's sexually abusing you, or you can say, no, you're the, you're the guilty party, I'm the victim, and we're getting together. It changes that whole shame, the shame of a student who can't afford a decent living situation is transformed into a militant righteousness. Right, and I think in education, we already are doing better at talking about imposter syndrome and how common that is. But Could you describe that, please? Um, I don't know. Can You can probably give a much better definition of well, it than I can. I, okay. I can. I, I still experience this regularly. I, I'm happy to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so imposter, well, I mean, especially growing up like pretty, I mean, a lot poorer than most people I actually know uh, in my life. Um, so imposter syndrome is when just the whatever kind of social spaces you're interacting in, you kind of feel like an imposter, like you don't belong there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you come from like a lower class background and now you're amongst a bunch of like middle to upper class people, you just sort of you pick up on different like cultural norms where you're like, oh, I don't really fit in here. And you can think of different sort of identity things, right? Like if you're a, a woman in a male space and you're like, I don't know, is it have these socialized? Yeah. yeah, sure, sure. Or yeah, for race, for sexual orientation. So all those you, you go into these spaces and there's certain expectations and they're not like explicitly named typically. They're not like, well, here's the rule. You have to like high five people like this or whatever, but you start to pick up on things and then you start to feel like you don't belong. Um, and I would, I would imagine maybe, um, Rachel, you could maybe speak on this, but in a super sort of competitively intellectual environment. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> I can hear, I can hear Richard Wolf uh, speaking loudly in the background. <laughs> I'm tar- sorry. Um, I will. I could tell him to pipe down. Hold on a second. Um, it's okay. He's probably um, on some like important talk show or something right now. <laughs> there are ways of enforcing the imposter syndrome. I know. I I had a friend who was a psychiatrist who had and who was black, and who had a BMW, and he'd say, "Oh, another." DWB, I got today, driving while black. 
because mm. he was always being stopped or that stop and frisk. These are ways of enforcing feelings of being an outsider, not belonging there. Sexual abuse on campus and off is a way, particularly in STEM fields and business schools, is a way to make women feel like, hey, you're, se- you're just a sex object, you don't belong here. And so that there are social ways that enforce this, this imposter syndrome, where you feel like I don't belong here. I'm being Mm -hmm. humiliated. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that's great about the students speaking up, not just cowering. Definitely. And like learning that that is a shared experience, that we are all feeling it and trying to fight it in one way or another. Um, But just talking about it, I think, is one of the best ways to counteract it. And in higher education, which is very predominantly white and male, I think um, it's really hard to feel like you belong in the sciences. I did my undergraduate degree in mathematics, and I was one of the smallest handful of women in my major. Um, And there is like in math, especially, there's a totally very exclusive culture, like you need to speak the math language the way it's always been spoken tracing all the way back to old white men. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And you just have to wonder how many brilliant people of color have been excluded from these academic spaces for being excluded just culturally or feeling like they didn't belong Mm -hmm. or just not having the academic language to play the game right. And not having the courage to call it, because I remember being on a panel in the early days of women's liberation, and I was on a panel with a a woman who was a brilliant scientist making models of the brain, Naomi Weistein, and one of the Yale stuffy panelists was saying, you know, actually women have genetic needs to take care of males. For instance, <laughs> the this, the chimpanzee monkey and the, and she sh- sh- stood up and she said, Oh, for heaven's sakes with a real New York accent. <laughs> you have your monkeys. I have my monkeys. Don't call out your monkeys. <laughs> and he didn't know what to say because she wouldn't enter the discourse. She, she staked her claim outside yeah. and it what everyone laughed because you called the lie to that whole stuffy pretense of superiority and talk common sense. It was wonderful. God, it must suck so much being like a single person minority within that situation though too. Like when I just imagine that, I mean that the amount of power and like fierceness in that is astounding. But when I think of like, if you're the only person, like if you had like three women or five women out Mm. of 10 or 50 men or whatever, like I could see it being like, let's stand up together. But if you're one freaking person, you're like, I'm just going to stand up in this crowd of men and just like troll them kind of to get, you know, to disrupt this bullshit. Like, God, like the amount of courage that it must take to do that. Yeah, well, she had real moxie. And that's partly because she grew, you know, she went through graduate school making brain models as one of the only women. And she was also a founding mother of women's liberation. And she wasn't going to stand for their crap. It Mm. was wonderful because most people do and feel like I don't belong here. And I remember going to an Mm. economics convention because my husband's an economist and one of the um, esteemed stuffed shirts there very proudly said, (laughs) after all, gentlemen, we're talking to ourselves (laughs) very proudly. Wow. Yeah. I think um, it's also important when you're talking about it, though, is that imposter, like just bravery isn't the only thing you need to address imposter syndrome, because there are very real risks to that, like within our own wildcat strike. um, The students who were the victims of police violence were disproportionately people of color. Um, Mm. So by Mm. striking, they put themselves at much greater risk than I did as a white person. Um, And we have international Mm. students who 
were risking losing their visas and being deported because they were striking. Mm -hmm. And so for them to take those actions, they are putting so much more at risk than others of us, Mm -hmm. the other people Mm -hmm. in our cohort. So I think that... um, That's really important. It is also important to say that even Naomi Weinstein, she had a woman's movement behind her so that part of her voice Mm -hmm. wasn't just a little science lady voice. It was the power of the women's movement, which told her, don't stand for that crap and speak up like a woman. Yeah, I think having that... um group behind you is so, so important. Totally important. And, you know, it's another thing that what's happening now is for the first time, all sorts of corporations are very insincerely stating that Black Lives Matter, but they wouldn't Mm -hmm. if if millions of Americans weren't in the street. It would be business as usual. They're only, of course, giving lip service because they You know, for example, Walmart said how concerned they are and threw a couple of million dollars, which adds up to a tiny portion of a penny from their holdings as the richest family in the world. But they said they were so concerned, but they still pay pay so badly that people need food stamps and so that they're immiserating people and disempowering them at the same time. Yeah, we absolutely see that within the university where I'm just getting regular emails from the administration about how much we as a community care about Black Lives Matter on campus, Mm -hmm. while at the same time Mm -hmm. they are paying to bring extra cops on campus that disproportionately (laughs) threaten and affect the mental health of our Black students and our minority students. Um, And they have the money for that. Really, they say one thing and they Mm -hmm. don't even... Oh, yeah, they spent so much money bringing in cops from all over the state to threaten us. It was um, really extra salt in the wound. (laughs) Yes, and they don't have the money for cola either, supposedly. Mm -hmm. The other thing, I know this is true for for in Santa Barbara, the presence of of the UC here. And I think this is like almost universally true for when you have a renowned university somewhere is um, that they are a really, really active force of gentrification. Mm. And so um, if you kind of, if you think of it this way, like uh, tuition for renowned universities like the UCs are really, really high. And although a lot of us, like, you know, I got through undergrad, I think entirely off of Pell Grants because I grew up poor. So I sort of, you know, I got that, but um, you know, most kids, are, their parents are a little bit wealthier, so they can pay for the tuition, which also means that they can pay higher rents. And so if there's a university present, if you just sort of look at a map, everything surrounding the university ends up being this, like, it's just dollar signs in the eyes of real estate speculators, right? Mm-hmm. So they start saying like, oh, we can, we can hike the rents just even a couple hundred bucks more right around this university. So think about all the working class people who are not part of the university who are, you know, like dishwashers in the back of all the restaurants the students are going to and like house cleaners for the nicer houses for like the tenured, like well-paid professors and everything. So you can just see within any given university town, the class divide is enormous. And there's, you know, there's race and class and everything, all the sort of intersectional, intersectional things stacked into the population of the university town. But the one thing, well, there's a lot of things, but one of the many things the university doesn't talk about is that it is its active role in pushing out poor people and people of color um, from those towns because of the economic system in which they are profiting and continuing to raise uh, tuition rates and everything that they're they're pulling essentially usually like upper uh, you know middle to upper class people regardless of kind of their backgrounds and they they can they can sort of get away with and like sort of seem like they're um, being really progressive in their diversity initiatives. And, and I don't really know, I don't have like a hard position on, on whether that's good or bad either way. Um, but it's like, if is, is the goal then to have diversity within universities for the sake of diversity, um, while also pushing out diverse poor populations from the, from those very places. Yeah. And they end up just favoring, um, the students of color who don't talk about racial issues because Mm -hmm. it's the students who 
did address the fact that bringing cops on to campus is disproportionately violent towards our students of color. Um, and those are the students who got fired for striking. So it's very much only the good people who don't speak up and stay in line are the ones who get the reward of higher education. And those who actually do acknowledge the problems get phased out either through gentrification or through straight up violence. Um, yeah. Like we've also, had in our strike. Another way hmm. that they, that the university um, keeps the dynamic of dominance and subordination going is that they, I know quite a bit about Yale cause I lived in New Haven, Connecticut for a long time. Yale is a $30 billion endowment university. And yet they paid such low salaries that they've had strikes continuously because, and they have a population working for them as janitors and um, restaurant workers and so on, which has significant illiteracy, which they never address because truth and light, which is their motto, doesn't include lightening the burden on the people who serve them. And so there's a huge class differential. I remember in terms of the opportunism that they have, when the Panthers were in New Haven, Connecticut, there were signs around Yale that said, Fry Bobby Seal, who was a Panther who was on trial. And they had their maintenance crew change Fry to free. So it's free Bobby Seal when the big demonstrations were in New Haven, because they want the appearance of tolerance while they perpetuate a horrendous capitalist profit gouging, cheat their workers in spite of their $30 billion endowment. It's a, it, the universities run like capitalist corporations, selling degrees and getting and enriching the top. Mm. And because yeah. of it, their students have to strike like their employees in the kitchen in order to be recognized. And I know, at least on our campus, the students and the maintenance workers and the other camp university employees are always striking in solidarity with each other. Um, so not for this one, since it was a wildcat strike and it was unsanctioned, we didn't quite get the same response. But I know in all of the previous strikes, um, students and faculty go on strike when the bus drivers go on strike, um, just to Sorry. kind of leverage their greater power. Could you actually ex explain for listeners? I just realized I'm not sure if anyone knows, if everyone knows what a wildcat strike is, mm. oh, Rachel. Sure. Um, so a wildcat strike is a strike that is not union sanctioned. Um, so in our case, graduate students, we are represented by a union. When you're represented by a union, you get certain legal protections, um, including protections on striking. Um also, if you are striking through your union, you get um, a strike salary, so you can continue getting paid in the time that you're on strike through your union. Um, meanwhile, a wildcat strike is done outside of the union, so we did not have any of those legal strike protections that have been put in place due to all the various workers' movements in the past. Right. Well, in terms of the of unity and in terms of the people feeling their own power and not submitting the successful teachers strikes in West Virginia and Arkansas and Tennessee and places you'd never imagine were all wildcat strikes because people felt the union might sell them out because some mm -hmm. unions are corrupt. And so they had wildcat strikes and they won. And yeah, I think, go ahead, please. Oh, I was, just going to say in our case, it was because our student union represents all of the UCs. So they weren't addressing the individual mm. needs of one campus with a very different cost of living than another campus. And I know, um, I think like six out of our seven union representatives actually stepped down from their roles in the union so that they could help us in the strike and participate in that. And they wouldn't have been able to. Wow. As, um, union members. So we had like people officially resign from their union positions. 
That's incredible. That yeah, is so was, um, important. <laughs> and that's really what America has to learn. And one of the reasons that all of Europe has tamed COVID and we haven't, and one of the reasons that in Germany, before the pandemic, the unemployment rate was 5% and now it's 6%, whereas in the United States, the unemployment rate was 4 point something percent and now it's close to 20%, is because all the unions fight together. If you're in France, for example, and the transit workers are on strike, the, the electricity's turned off, the gas is turned off, and that's it. They have to listen. They have to negotiate because they have a much greater socialist and small but powerful communist presence and green presence. So they wouldn't dare do what they've done in the United States, have 50 million people having applied for unemployment and pit workers against each other because their left wouldn't allow it. We're in terrible shape in this class war against us that Trump is levying. And not only Trump, the Republicans with collusion from many Democrats, but your wildcat strikes, Rachel, are an example the way the teacher strikes were. No, we don't have to take it. No, we may be just students or graduate students, but that doesn't mean that we're going to tolerate being starved out of our positions. It's very important as an example. I kind of want to plug the IWW in this moment because it seems <laughs> relevant. Um, so just maybe because it's on topic and it's, this is going to sound like I'm advertising for them or something. So like, I, so I'm a member of the IWW. I IWW is really, <laughs> oh, awesome. Okay. Yeah. Oh, not surprised. Not surprised. So um, just so for co some context for listeners, because again, like the decimation of unions over the last 40, 50 years is to the point where like most people in America are not a member of a union and therefore have no idea how unions work. And if they wanted to unionize their workplace, they, they wouldn't even know where to go. They wouldn't know who to talk to. So I also want to just name sort of the frustration of um, if you try to talk to one of the bigger, what we call like business or mainstream unions like UAW, SEIU, like whatever the, there's like bigger unions most people are, are familiar with, or AFT, like the big teachers ones. Um, in a lot of cases, if that, if that particular union doesn't see you as a strategic um, part of like some like bigger sort of political and um, potentially business oriented plan that they see long term, they won't even call you back. They won't even reply to your email or whatever. Um, if they do see you as potentially a good uh, strategic part of their plan, they'll talk to you and then they'll walk you through, thankfully, how you can unionize your workplace, which kind of just begins with talking to coworkers, eventually bu building something called an organizing committee. And by the way, all of this is kind of stressful when you start doing it, but it also is incredibly empowering and good for your mental health. Highly recommend it. The difference between all those kinds of unions and the and the IWW is um, so when we're talking about the uh, like legal versus like quote unquote non legal unionizing uh, type of work, um, the IWW has been known for the last century for being the kind of union where they don't see the um, what we call the NLRB, the National uh, Labor Relations Board. It's like the regulatory body that oversees everything uh, labor union related in the U.S. They don't necessarily see that regulatory body as the, um, what do I want to say? They don't, it's not like they don't think it's legitimate, but they don't, they don't think that you need to get recognition from them to actually be a union that really at the end of the day, if you just get a group of coworkers mm -hmm. together that have some common grievances and they, they say that's related to like, we don't get paid enough or this boss is sexually harassing people or mm -hmm. like whatever that you can just do, you know, even just five people, you can say like, we're doing what's called a march on the boss. We're going to go talk to the boss directly and say like, stop doing this done. You did, you, you have been unionizing, you've been doing union activity or whatever. Um, so I just, I want to like throw this out for listeners who might feel in this moment, like, your job sucks, your boss sucks, your your workplace situation sucks, and you're not a part of a union, you actually can join the IWW right now. You can just go to IWW.org and like click join or whatever. Um, and I don't want to like give the false impression that suddenly like your wages get better and like you get great <laughs> health benefits or something because it unfortunately it doesn't. Like it's not like IWW doesn't, doesn't like show up with like a mob of people in black and red and like force your boss to treat <laughs> yes. you better. What, what they do is they, they tap you into a network of other organizers, um, organizer, tra um, organizing trainers who are like an astounding resource and they'll train you 
uh, to become a sort of a little subversive unit organizer within your workplace to figure out how to talk to your coworkers and see if they have the same grievances. And I, so last part of this rant is that when I first tapped into this, the reason it was so empowering for me was that I found like, I was like, holy crap, there's like methods. There's like century, century old methods of building um, re- like strong, healthy relationships with coworkers who I may have not talked to before anyway. Like I wouldn't have necessarily had a reason to. And we're now realizing we have some shared issues and we have a sort of game plan, potentially a game plan to solve those problems in the workplace. And before that, I, I did feel like most workers in, I think, America right now, um, fearful, hopeless, powerless, there's nothing I can do. Um, so this isn't to say IWW is better than the other unions, but you might run into some issues with the other unions. You might not. Jeez. Okay. Advertisement over. Um, <laughs> Rachel can maybe, I don't know, just segue. Can you speak on like, why, like, why are you an IWW member? Like, what are your thoughts on IWW versus say UAW or other unions? Sure. Um, so yeah, our current student union is actually UAW. And that was a big part of our conversation during our wildcat strike is because our UAW union did fail to represent us as graduate students and represent our needs. So I think a lot of us graduate students decided to join IWW and be a member of both. Um, mm-hmm. I, To me, I view it as a resource on organizing. They have like tons of training and they put you in touch with people who have way more experience organizing. And I know they hold like workshops. Um, so those are the types of resources that I personally wanted to tap into when I joined. And also, Mm -hmm. I just think they're awesome and I want to pay dues to support them. Mm -hmm. I also really do think that one of the things that your wildcat strikes did, Rachel, and one of the things that organizing does, one of the things that labor organizing did before the anti-communist onslaught, when about 35% of Americans were in unions, even in the private sector, now 7% are, big difference, is that it gave a sense of empowerment to even those people who weren't in unions. All those other Mm -hmm. students, the undergraduate students, had a sense of empowerment because you were out there. And I remember in the 60s when I was, I guess it was the early 70s, when I was in graduate school at Columbia, there was just a sense of empowerment in the air. And we had a teacher who was an adjunct who just was a failure. And she had, she used to arrive late. She rambled. She was completely inadequate. And she had assigned a paper and didn't bring it in, didn't correct it, didn't bring it in week after week. And so finally, someone in the class said, uh, what's up with the papers? And everyone said, yeah, yeah, you know, because we were all feeling empowered. And she said, well, I've corrected most of them. And one woman in the class said, well, did you correct mine? She said, yes. And the woman said, well, I didn't hand it in. So (laughs) (laughs) a group of, I stood up and I said, let's go talk to the dean. We all went and talked to the dean and she was, not rehired again. But that was not because of one thing or another. It was because Colombia had to be shut down in protest in the 60s against the war in Vietnam, which was unrelated, but there was to the issue of our class, but there was a sense you don't have to sit there and shut up and take it. You can stand up to authority. And so it's contagious and very powerful. One of the reasons they try to put it down all the time, because if everyone realizes there's a lot of us and only a couple of them deciding where all this money goes, uh uh-uh, then it's a problem. Yeah. And then we have Um, the power. I don't know how appropriate of a topic this is, but you touched on it a little bit earlier when you mentioned the Me Too movement, but I think it's related. I just learned yesterday that somebody within our department has been sexual. One of the students was sexually assaulting two other students in our year, in the one year that he's been here. Um, And I learned this because the um, victims 
spread the word immediately and made sure everyone in our department in our year knew that this was going on, knew to avoid him and look out for him and protect yourselves and protect each other. And um, they're going to report it and there's going to be an official investigation. But I was just able to see like, even before going through these official channels, the victims of sexual assault are viewing us as a community who can help protect them and help uphold them and like worthy of knowing about it and just being able to talk about assault within your community and to get support from that instead of abuse and victim blaming. Um, I think it's at least indicative of maybe a positive cultural shift. I think so. But the cultural shift happened because people organized together and spoke up because they didn't individually suffer in silence because they got together and because they exposed what was going on. Otherwise, Weinstein would still be out there, you know, exploiting and sexually assaulting people. Cosby would, and so would all the others. It was interesting in England, they did an experiment. They had a big um, Tory party convention and they always hire these attractive young women to be servers. And -hmm. they infiltrated as, you know, England's Me Too. And when men groped them, they took, you know, they got their names (laughs) and then they went to the press afterwards and dressed them all out. This MP did that, that MP did this. And they wouldn't have done it if it hadn't been for the movement to support them. Wow. Because it goes to everyone. Everyone feels more empowered because of it. And that's a huge social service. And it's a huge bite out of capitalism's iron hold on people because it runs on the idea that even if you'll never have any capital, you should be a capitalist because you should sit there and shut up and take it or else because you're alone and you're nobody if you're not rich. It takes that away. And that's why they try to instill in, in us the sense of shame if we don't have money or shame if we can't earn enough rather than militants in terms of claiming what's ours. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about like how we have this idea in our culture of like, whether if if you're like a victim of a crime or you've been abused by somebody or, um, or just whatever your sort of individual suffering is like, you should reach out and talk to like a counselor or a therapist, which like, I mean, obviously Harriet and I are biased. We're like, yeah, come, come talk, talk to, to us. us yeah. or, like go see therapists or whatever. Like I still, I'm a therapist who like sees a therapist. Like I'm a big fan. Um, but that like, we're kind of one broad theme of what we're talking about are um, like community, community uh, interventions to individual problems that actually turn out to be community problems. And just how I really wish I'm, I'm hoping that like, these, whether it's um, wildcat strikes that lead to like sexual assault survivors feeling a little bit more comfortable reaching out to the union and then creating again, like that's what you just described, Rachel, is a community intervention that's like reducing symptoms of PTSD, that's like creating safety plans on a community uh, wide level. Um, that to me is probably a lot more effective. I don't want to say more effective, but it's just a different framework of looking at how to solve the problem versus like one person who got harmed going and talking to a therapist to try to like work through, you know, I don't know, trauma symptoms. Um, like not that, you know, again, that that's not like definitely people should do that. Um, but I could just see like there being so much more upliftment for people when they do feel like, well, I'm not alone in this. First of all, a lot of other people are experiencing this and I know that there are other people I can talk to about this and that we can solve the problem together. Like we don't even necessarily have to like, reach out to like a professional or an institution necessarily, mm-hmm. we have the collective power to kind of, um, to solve the problem. And to me, that's just so much more, like it feels healthier to me of um, like what my sort of optimal society would look like. Like that's how people, like in, instead of like each of us are these completely separate individuals who seek out professional right. services for individualized problems, you know? Cause it's just so in our the, head. <laughs> well, right. Exactly. Exactly. 
Um, I think that's really, really important. And the, look, the biggest organization in the United States and the most successful in every little town is AA, the 12-step program, which is basically run on communist principles, even though they don't advertise that aspect <laughs> at all, but which is from each according to his ability or her ability to each according to her needs, that everyone can come for free. No money is allowed. No one is allowed to be paid except if they want to buy materials and you share and no one is judged and everybody who comes acknowledges that they have a common problem and they need each other to get over that problem. That's a very communistic principle. I don't think they'd get as many free churches if they sold it that way, but it is the most successful social program in the United States. It's ubiquitous. And it's ubiquitous, I think, because the principles are completely communistic and in solidarity. And people who do go to AA, you know, if they see someone on the subway reading one of the, the AA books, they'll start talking about them. There's an instant sense of bond. Because I think somewhere people emotionally mm-hmm. recognize we need each other. We may need a therapist sometimes to help us through, but we also need the solidarity of one another. Definitely. I think that's also really relevant for college students because mm-hmm. I know on campus, like we have a great mental health center and I get care through them. Um, I get therapy and see psychiatrists all through my university provided healthcare and on campus clinics. And they're great and they do a great job. Um, and it's great that they have counselors, but also, you know, there's something wrong when the university administration knows they're putting students through so much stress that mm. they need to hire more counselors to yes counsel the students through the stress mm. of getting a college degree. Like, it's good that they're doing it, but it's not mm-hmm. addressing the systemic problems. No. And also, you know, when you do your doctorate, you have to do it all by yourself which is very lonely. It's why six, I think 60% drop out before they do their dissertation because it's just too lonely. And the, there's a whole idea that you have to work alone, you do this paper alone, and no one does intellectual work alone. Everybody builds on the work of everyone else. It's a lie and it's very lonely. It should work differently to empower us. Yeah. And then, then we yeah. need fewer counselors. <laughs> I think that's kind of ideal. Yeah, yeah, like putting therapists out of a job. Anyway, I (laughs) yes, yes, it it is. Anyway, Mm -hmm. I think this is a great time to wrap up and thank Rachel for her sterling examples and her participation in this, because really, mental health is about connection and empowerment, Mm -hmm. and so is organizing. And Rachel, did you have any last, I don't know, like plugs for um, stuff you're involved in in Santa Cruz or um, like related to the Wildcat strike or any like, you know, final messages you'd like to have listeners here? Um, the strike website is payusmoreucsc.com. Um, I think their website has everything, the strike fund, um, tons of history, the full timeline, every communication with the admin um, I think that's just like a really cool resource if people are interested in learning more about it. And yeah, could you say it slowly again for people to write down if they want to? The website, yeah, it's pay pay us more ucsc.com. And they have all the facts and figures and things that I think that I don't know off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, I thank you guys for having me I um it's really exciting and I think the intersection of mental health and economics and world client is the world climate is something that's really important to me personally and I totally agree with you like my main takeaway from my experience with this wildcat strike is seeing the solidarity and the community and seeing how many 
of my fellow students are willing to work to uphold those of us that are struggling and support each other. And yeah, a main takeaway is that overall, I think it was great for my mental health (laughs) to see that and be a part of it. Thank you. I think it's great for the mental health of us and our listeners to hear you. Um, and so for listeners who would like to contact us, as Rachel did, our email is it's not just in your head at gmail.com. And we're open to uh, love mail, hate mail, uh, factual corrections, letting us know we said something problematic or whatever you'd like to share with us. Or if you want to um, you know, be a guest on the podcast as Rachel was. We're open to that as well. Bye bye, <laughs> and forget the hate mail. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm open to it. But no hate mail it has to be. <laughs> send me the hate mail. If you want to be intelligently critical, if you want to be intelligently critical, to that's the university okay. admin. I'm like exactly. the hate mail can go to the university admin. I'm like bizarrely, I have this weird fascination. Like I like watching it get my my blood drawn. Like when they when they stick the needles on me, I'm like so fascinated. Like I don't know. So I <laughs> like I like hate mail. So just send it to me. You don't have to direct it at Harriet. And then also just as a note for for you two, when I'm going to click stop recording, and but you guys should stay on so we can have the audio upload. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay.